Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. Back again to review the week's precedential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. As always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. Before we get to the cases, I want to say thank you. In the five weeks since the podcast began, we've had over 1,100 downloads, and I'm simply blown away. I hope that everyone is enjoying the show, and if you are, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so more listeners can find the show. Also, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we place chapter markers in every show, allowing you to easily jump to whatever case you're interested in hearing. We've also included the timestamps in the show notes. And with that, on to the show. This week, we're diving headfirst in the categorical approach, a triple indie of criminal conviction analyses from the Second Circuit. I know, we like to start off with the light stuff. We also touch on asylum and the ever-present residual issues from Pereira v. Sessions. Now on to the first case. The first decision we're going to cover this week is a case published by the Second Circuit on May 27th, Williams v. Barr. And it's a doozy. It discusses one of the oddest features of immigration law, the antique firearm exception, and also holds that the realistic probability test is not applicable when the plain text of a criminal statute is overbroad. It's a big one, so let's go. We're going to focus primarily on legal issues in this case. Mr. Williams is a lawful permanent resident, or LPR, and was convicted under Connecticut General Statute Section 29-35A for carrying a pistol or revolver without a permit. He was found removable because an IJ and the BIA determined that his conviction matched INA Section 237A2C, a firearms offense. The Firearm Offense Removal Statute incorporates the definition of a firearm used at 18 U.S.C. Section 921A3, kind of like how the Controlled Substance Removal Offense incorporates the Federal Controlled Substance List. Under Section 921A3, the firearm definition, quote, does not include an antique firearm, end quote. For those of you who are curious, To qualify as an antique firearm, the weapon must have been manufactured before 1898, but it can be operable. So listeners, if you want to legally prepare for the next revolution, start hoarding those Revolutionary War muskets. So, for Mr. Williams' Connecticut crime to be a firearms offense, his conviction must cover the same or less conduct than the federal offense. As relevant here, if Connecticut punishes carrying an antique firearm, the Connecticut crime is broader than the federal definition. Because remember, the federal firearm definition doesn't include antiques. As you may recall, this analysis, where the court compares the elements of the federal removal statute with the state criminal statute, is called the categorical approach. Now, as it turns out, Connecticut does indeed have its own antique firearm exception. It exempts the transporting of antique firearms. But the exception only applies if the antique firearm is unloaded. Not so with the federal antique firearm exception, which is a blanket exception for all antique firearms, unloaded or not. And that's it. 
Even though it's a long decision, for this reason, the Second Circuit held that the Connecticut statute is not a categorical match to a federal firearms offense. And even though it didn't need to go further, the Second Circuit did go further, explaining that the Connecticut exception, which exempts only transporting antique firearms, does not exempt other manners of carrying antique firearms. This again is in contrast to the federal exception, which exempts all conduct involving antique firearms. So for this additional reason, the Connecticut firearm law is broader than the federal removable offense. And to reach this conclusion, the Second Circuit relied upon the plain text of the statute and Connecticut Supreme Court case law. So that's the holding. But wait, there's much, much more. The BIA decision in this case held in the alternative that even if the Connecticut law is broader than the federal definition of a firearms offense, there is no realistic probability that Connecticut actually prosecutes the carrying of antique firearms without a permit. This realistic probability requirement comes from the Supreme Court's 2007 case, Gonzalez v. Duenas Alvarez. Just what the realistic probability test requires has been the subject of a lot of litigation recently. But as the Second Circuit recognized in this case, the Supreme Court applied the realistic probability test in Duenas Alvarez to a situation where, at first blush, the criminal statute appeared to categorically match the federal statute, making the non-citizen removable. But, after reviewing state case law, the Duenas Alvarez court concluded that the state prosecuted conduct beyond the scope of a removable offense. As the Second Circuit noted in this case, however, the realistic probability test, quote, has no role to play, end quote, where, like here, the inverse is true. That is, where the state criminal statute's plain text covers more conduct than the federal offense. Here, the antique firearm definition. In cases such as this, the analysis is over, because the plain text of the statute makes the statute overbroad. The realistic probability test does not apply, and the state's criminal statute is categorically not a match to the federal removable offense. This application of the categorical approach and realistic probability test is contrary to the BIA's 2019 holding in Matter of Navarro-Guadarrama, because, well, Matter of Navarro-Guadarrama is wrong. The 11th Circuit in whose jurisdiction Navarro-Guadarrama arose, inferred as much a few months later, in Bordzakis v. Attorney General. Importantly, the BIA in Navarro-Guadarrama based its realistic probability application on what the BIA thought the 11th Circuit required. Bordzakis shows that the BIA misread the 11th Circuit's case law. So listeners, I'm pretty sure a matter of Navarro-Guadarrama's realistic probability test analysis is not good law. And that's Williams v. Barr. The next case out of the Second Circuit is Mendez v. Barr, published on May 27, 2020. This case concerns crimes involving moral turpitude, or CIMTs, and vacates the underlying published Board of Immigration Appeals decision in this case, Matter of Mendez, published by the Board in 2018. So matter of Mendez is no longer good law, and should not be relied upon by anyone, anywhere, for any purpose. Mr. Mendez became an LPR in 2004, 
and in 2010 he was convicted of misprison of a felony in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 4. That statute makes it a crime for anyone who knows that a federal felony has occurred to conceal it and not promptly report it to authorities. This case concerns whether conviction for that crime is a CIMT. Usually, a single CIMT conviction does not make an LPR removable from the United States. Mr. Mendez, however, briefly left the U.S. in 2016. Under normal circumstances, LPRs have the right to return to the United States without any problems, unless certain circumstances, outlined at INA Section 101A13C, apply. One of those circumstances is if the LPR has been convicted of a single CIMT. So Mr. Mendez ran into trouble when he returned from his trip, and he was placed in removal proceedings before an immigration judge. An IJ and then the BIA, in its 2018 Presidential Opinion Matter of Mendez, found that 18 U.S.C. Section 4 is a CIMT and that Mr. Mendez is removable. The Second Circuit disagreed, and here's why. In the Second Circuit and all circuits, really, a CIMT must involve conduct that shocks the public conscience and is inherently base, vile, or depraved. And to meet this standard, in the Second Circuit, and again, really all circuits, the crime must usually require an evil intent, or a specific mental purpose that is inherently base, vile, or depraved. The Second Circuit reviewed the misprison of a felony statute, and case law analyzing that statute, and held that the criminal statute lacks this required evil intent. Specifically, according to the Second Circuit, the misprison criminal statute, quote, does not speak to any specific mental purpose, end quote. And as the Second Circuit noted, citing the cases, there is a realistic probability that individuals are convicted of misprison of a felony without harboring any evil intent. Accordingly, the statute is never a CIMT. Mr. Mendez gets to keep his green card, and the BIA's decision matter of Mendez is vacated. And that is the holding. Now for some practice pointers. First, the Second Circuit in this case applied the rule of lenity, albeit in the alternative. Under that rule, courts are supposed to resolve any doubts regarding the scope of an ambiguous criminal statute and doubts about a non-citizen's removability in the non-citizen's favor. The BIA itself applied this rule in 1992 in matter of CERNA. The rule of lenity isn't applied often, so it's good to remember that the rule is alive and well and ready to be asserted. Next, as this case discusses, whether misprison of a felony as a CIMT might be the circuit split to end all circuit splits. And there goes our new circuit split music. Here's the two-minute timeline. In 1966, the BIA said that misprison of a felony was not a CIMT in matter of Sloan. But in 2002, the 11th Circuit said it was in Itani v. Ashcroft. Then in 2006, the BIA changed its mind and said it was a CIMT in matter of Robles Urea. However, in 2012, the 9th Circuit, in whose jurisdiction Robles Urea originated, disagreed with the BIA and vacated Robles Urea. Then, in 2017, the 5th Circuit agreed with the 11th Circuit and held that misprison of a felony is a CIMT in Villegas Arabia v. Sessions. And then, in 2018, in Matter of Mendez, the BIA reaffirmed Matter of Robles Urea. But because it couldn't overrule the 9th Circuit, the BIA held that Robles Urea applied in all circuits except the 9th Circuit. 
Now that the Second Circuit has vacated matter of Mendez, neither matter of Robles y Rea or matter of Mendez apply anywhere, except in the Fifth and Eleventh Circuit, which have adopted the rationale of those two decisions as their own. If any finality on this is going to occur, it's going to have to come from the Supreme Court. Now, an administrative law note on all of this. Although the circuit courts, including the Second Circuit, must defer to the BIA's reasonable interpretation of what the definition of a CIMT is, the circuits do not need to defer to which criminal convictions meet that CIMT definition, because the BIA does not have any specific expertise in reviewing the elements of criminal statutes. A fine line, but an important line, and the reason that matter of Mendez is no longer good law. Staying on administrative law, and to reiterate a point about this case, because the BIA's 2018 Mendez decision has now been vacated, it is no longer good law, and no IJ anywhere can rely on it. The same goes for other BIA decisions vacated by federal courts, like the 2014 decision about particularly serious crimes matter of GGS. This makes Mendez and GGS different from instances where, say, circuits merely disagree and do not defer to BIA decisions. When, as here, a circuit vacates a BIA decision, that decision no longer exists, unless and until the BIA issues a new decision reaffirming its prior decision. This is why the BIA reaffirmed Robles Urea with Mendez, and it's also the reason why neither of those decisions hold any authority anywhere for anyone anymore. One final note. Some listeners might disagree with the Second Circuit and believe that misprison of a felony is really bad. But consider this hypothetical, used by the Second Circuit in this case, and everything I'm about to say is a quote from the Second Circuit. Quote, Consider an individual living in a housing project that is plagued by violent drug-dealing gangs and drug-related crimes. That individual witnesses a shooting involving the gangs and knows the individuals involved who happen to be in his neighborhood. When that individual is approached by law enforcement officers, he falsely denies knowledge of those involved in the shooting. He does so because he fears that the shooters or other gang members will retaliate against him and his family. No one can seriously argue that this individual did not violate Section 4, and no one can seriously argue that what he did was inherently base, vile, or depraved. End quote. I tend to agree. And that is Mendez v. Barr. Staying with the Second Circuit, our next case is Kanjoua v. Barr, published on May 28, 2020. This case discusses crime of violence aggravated felonies and holds that third-degree sexual assault in violation of Connecticut General Statute 53A-72AA1 is an aggravated felony as defined at INA Section 101A43F and 18 U.S.C. Section 16A. The questions in this case are purely legal, so I'll start with a brief legal background. LPRs are removable and lose their green cards if they're convicted of a crime that matches an aggravated felony under immigration law, also known as an AGFEL. One of those AGFELs is a crime of violence, defined at INA Section 101A43F. Crimes of violence, in turn, are defined by statute at 18 U.S.C. Section 16A and 16B. So to summarize, an AGFEL crime of violence is any crime that matches the definition at 18 U.S.C. 16A or 16B. 
An IJ and the BIA held that the crime in this case matches the crime of violence definition at section 16b. But in 2018, during the pendency of this case, the Supreme Court held, in Sessions v. DeMaia, and with newly appointed Justice Gorsuch concurring, that 18 U.S.C. Section 16b is unconstitutionally vague. This means that now, only crimes that match Section 16a will qualify as a crime of violence ag fell. And that's what the Second Circuit is deciding in this case, whether the sexual assault crime is a 16a offense. Section 16a defines a crime of violence as, quote, an offense that has as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person or property of another, end quote. Under Supreme Court precedent, the phrase physical force means violent force, that is, force capable of causing physical pain or injury to another person. And last year in the Stokeling decision, the Supreme Court further defined the degree of force required of Section 16A to also include, quote, an amount of force necessary to overcome a victim's resistance and unjust or improper force. To determine whether a crime contains the violent force and other elements required of Section 16A, courts apply the categorical approach. Applying that approach, if comparing the elements of Connecticut's third-degree sexual assault crime with the elements of Section 16A, the Second Circuit determines that the Connecticut crime criminalizes only violent force, as defined by the Supreme Court, the Connecticut crime is a match to a crime of violence aggravated felony. Here, the Second Circuit found that indeed, Connecticut's third-degree sexual assault crime only criminalizes violent force, and so it's a crime of violence ag fell. And here's the reason why. The Connecticut sexual assault statute requires that the defendant commit the sexual assault through a use of force or threatened use of force. And Connecticut further defines use of force to include use of a dangerous instrument or actual physical or superior force to overcome the victim. Following a review of its own case law and that of the Connecticut Supreme Court, the Second Circuit held that this meets the federal definition of violent force, making Connecticut's third-degree sexual assault crime an aggravated felony crime of violence. Here are some observations and practice pointers from this case. A lot of the very smart arguments made by petitioners' counsel in this case were fatally undercut by the Supreme Court's Stokeling decision. It would appear that, going forward, appellate courts will read Stokeling as having lowered the bar on the degree of force necessary to constitute a Section 16a offense. After all, the Stokeling court held that to constitute violent force or threatened violent force, quote, the altercation need not cause pain or injury, or even be prolonged. It is the physical contest between the criminal and the victim that is itself capable of causing physical pain or injury, end quote. Although this definition expressly excludes mere touching, the definition would seem to cover a wide array of criminal conduct, even where force is not intuitively a required element of the crime. And a final note, it would appear that the Second Circuit agrees with the Eleventh Circuit, that if a sexual assault-type crime allows for conviction where the defendant merely used his or her, quote, 
position of authority to threaten disciplinary action to compel sexual conduct with the victim, end quote, or in other circumstances where there is no implicit threat of physical harm, that type of conviction does not entail the type of violent force required by Section 16A and would therefore not be a crime of violence aggravated felony. So, practitioners, keep that definition in mind for future use. And that is Kanjooa Vibar. Next is a case out of the Eighth Circuit, published on May 26th, Bannister et al. v. Barr. This is a short case about controlled substance offenses, and involves the categorical approach. But because it's a short case that relies heavily on a prior Eighth Circuit decision from this year, we're not going to dive too deep into the categorical approach on this one. This is a consolidated case of two non-citizens, both of whom are LPRs, and were convicted under Minnesota Statute Section 152.025, Subdivision 2, which is Minnesota's fifth-degree possession of a controlled substance statute. DHS charged them as removable under INA Section 237A2BI as non-citizens convicted of any law or regulation of a state relating to a controlled substance as defined at Section 802 of Title 21. Recall that Section 802 of Title 21 is the Federal Controlled Substance List. And also recall that to conduct this analysis, courts apply the categorical approach. And if a state's controlled substance list, in this case Minnesota's, covers more drugs than the Federal Controlled Substance List, the criminal drug conviction does not categorically match a law relating to a controlled substance. As an aside, Minnesota's controlled substance list apparently covers 200 more drugs than the federal list, showing just how large these state-controlled substance lists can be, and why it's unlikely that any state-controlled substance list will ever match the federal list, unless the state simply pegs its list to the federal list. So, because the Minnesota drug statute does not categorically match a law relating to a controlled substance, remember it's got 200 more drugs, The Eighth Circuit could only proceed with its analysis if the Minnesota statute was divisible, which would require that the identity of the controlled substance a defendant possessed be an element of the Minnesota possession statute that a prosecutor must prove to obtain a conviction. If the identity of the controlled substance is not an element of the offense, the inquiry would be over because the Eighth Circuit would be unable as a matter of law to determine whether the non-citizen possessed the substance listed in the Federal Controlled Substance List. In this case, the non-citizens argued that their statute of conviction, the Minnesota statute, was not divisible. But unfortunately for them, the Eighth Circuit determined earlier this year in Rendon v. Barr that the specific controlled substance is an element of Minnesota's fifth-degree possession statute, and that therefore, Minnesota's fifth-degree possession statute is divisible. Because the Minnesota statute is divisible, the Eighth Circuit conducted a modified categorical approach analysis, which allowed it to, among other things, review the plea agreement and criminal complaint. In this case, those documents showed that the non-citizens possessed methamphetamine, which is a controlled substance listed in both the federal list and the Minnesota list. Because we have a match, both non-citizens are removable for having violated a law relating to a controlled substance. And that's the holding. But one more thing needs to be said. 
It appears that to avoid the Rendon decision, remember a decision that the Eighth Circuit only published shortly before this case, the non-citizens in this case also argued that Minnesota's definition of methamphetamine itself is broader than the federal definition of methamphetamine. In other words, they argue that Minnesota considers more chemical compounds to be methamphetamine than does the federal government. What an argument! Unfortunately, we don't get to find out the answer to the argument, because the non-citizens didn't make it before the BIA. Remember, they didn't need to because Rendon hadn't been published yet. And so, the Eighth Circuit deemed the additional argument waived. But the argument deserves its day in court, so we'll have to wait for another clever attorney to make it before the IJ and the BIA, so the Eighth Circuit, or another circuit, can address it. And that's Bannister et al. v. Barr. Our next case is Prito Pineda v. Barr, a not-so-noteworthy case out of the Eighth Circuit, denying an application for asylum and related relief from El Salvador. Mr. Prito was president of a local fishing cooperative in a town in El Salvador. Members of Mara 18, also known as the 18th Street Gang, a prominent gang in El Salvador, told him to give them rides on his boats so they could avoid crossing the territory of their rival gang, MS-13. MS-13 is an international criminal organization that originally started as a gang in Los Angeles in the 1970s and 1980s, and which now controls significant territory in El Salvador and throughout Central America. Eventually, the Mara 18 gang stopped paying Mr. Prito for rides, and so he stopped giving them rides. In response, the Mara members came to his home, threatened his life and that of his family, and threw dead animals and rocks on his roof on multiple occasions. Mr. Prito would call the police, and the Mara members would disperse. Mr. Prito fled to the United States in 2013. In the meantime, he kept in contact with his wife in El Salvador, who told him that Mara 18 had stolen the cooperative's boats, and that she herself was raped. Then in 2016, his wife was murdered. Mr. Prito does not know by whom, but it appears that the murder was retribution by someone or some group for Mr. Prito's wife's cooking for Salvadoran soldiers and police officers. For these reasons, Mr. Prito applied for asylum, withholding of removal, and torture convention protection in immigration court proceedings in 2017. The asylum application was denied because, barring extraordinary circumstances, an asylum application must be filed within one year of a non-citizen's entry into the United States. Mr. Prito's withholding of removal and CAT applications were denied for Mr. Prito's failure to meet his burden. As we've discussed before, to receive asylum and withholding of removal, it's not enough for someone to fear harm in their country. A non-citizen must fear harm because of one of the five protected grounds, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, known as a PSG. Here, the Eighth Circuit held that even though Mr. Prito's fishing cooperative is likely a PSG, Mr. Prito did not establish that he feared harm because of his membership in the PSG, or because of any anti-gang political opinion. Rather, his fears were the result of criminal gang activity, which, if true, doesn't allow a non-citizen to obtain asylum or withholding of removal. Addressing the murder of Mr. Prito's wife, the Eighth Circuit noted that it was tragic, but that Mr. Prito couldn't prove it was committed by Mara 18, or because of a protected ground. 
Finally, the Eighth Circuit denied Mr. Prieto's application for torture protection. While torture protection doesn't require a nexus to a protected ground, like asylum or withholding of removal, it does require that the country's government commit, acquiesce, or consent to the torture feared. Here, Mr. Prieto could not establish a sufficient government connection. The Eighth Circuit therefore affirmed the denial of Mr. Prieto's applications, meaning that he will be deported to El Salvador. All I can say, particularly to listeners who are not immigration attorneys, is that the circuit courts review asylum and torture decisions under a very deferential standard of review, and that asylum and torture law is complicated, filled with seemingly arbitrary requirements. It is because of these legal requirements, and not because the Eighth Circuit doesn't believe that Mr. Prito's life is in danger from Mara 18, that Mr. Prito will be deported. Decisions like this are issued every day in immigration court, and only a change to asylum law by Congress will change that. And that is Prito Panetta v. Barr. The final case this week is out of the Seventh Circuit, Chen v. Barr, published on May 29, 2020. This is a relatively short and pithy decision, in usual Judge Easterbrook fashion. It takes us back into the world of Pereira v. Sessions, cancellation of removal, and notices to appear, a world we've entered a couple times in recent months, as regular listeners of the podcast will tell you. Which seems like a good place for me to say, thank you to all regular listeners of the podcast. Please review us. Shameless self-promotions aside, here's the case, and I'll be brief because we've addressed similar issues before. Miss Chen was ordered removed. Years later, she filed a motion to reopen with the BIA, arguing that under Pereira v. Sessions, her NTA, which lacked the date and time of her first hearing, did not satisfy the stop-time rule for continuous presence, and that she was therefore eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB. The BIA denied Ms. Chen's motion, relying on its 2019 en banc split decision, Matter of Mendoza-Hernandez, which held wrongly in the view of some podcast hosts, that notwithstanding the Supreme Court's holding in Pereira, the stop-time rule attaches even if a non-citizen receives a deficient NTA, so long as the non-citizen eventually receives a notice of hearing with the required date, time, and location of the non-citizen's removal hearing. As the Seventh Circuit noted in this case, there's already a big circuit split on this issue, and the validity of Mendoza-Hernandez is probably heading to the Supreme Court. But in this case, the Seventh Circuit chose not to pick sides on this dispute, at least for now, because it held that Miss Chen waived the issue by failing to timely object to the NTA or applying for cancellation of removal in her immigration proceedings. In essence, the Seventh Circuit is saying that it will only entertain arguments such as Miss Chen's if the non-citizens made them before Pereira was even issued. And that's the holding. Miss Chen's petition was dismissed. Somewhat harsh of the Seventh Circuit, but also a reminder to practitioners to make unique legal arguments in immigration court, even if the law isn't yet on your side. And that is Chen V. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. 
Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. For questions, comments, or anything at all, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com. That's K-G-R-E-G-G at kktplaw.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. Or send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.